This is where kindness lives. Nextdoor's global podcast, your one-stop shop for all things kind. Here's your host, Jenny Sager. Our guest today is a business leader, a kindness warrior, and a mom of two. When she's not trailblazing in boardrooms or studying spreadsheets, she can be found heading off on a morning hike or possibly doing some online shoe shopping while she's out spreading kindness all over the world. It's my pleasure to welcome Nextdoor's chief neighbor and CEO, Sarah Fryer. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming from Australia to be here with me. We want to start by asking you the question that we ask all of our guests. What does kindness mean to you? To me, kindness is being willing to do something for someone else without requiring anything else in return. It's that maximum moment of um, being altruistic with your time. Unlike niceness, where often you are nice because you are expecting something in return, kindness to me is being willing to do sometimes very tough things, like giving someone really tough feedback because you genuinely care about their development, um, for example. So it doesn't always have to be nice, but I think a kind moment has that element of nothing is coming back at you. And in fact, it can make you very brave in the moment in a way that you maybe don't even expect of yourself. And is there someone in your life that comes to mind that's shown you kindness over the years? I grew up in a pretty tough community um, on the border in Northern Ireland. Uh, the troubles were rife the whole way through all my childhood. In fact, you know, I was in my 20s before we had the peace settlement. But I always come back to my neighbors because in our moments of need, they always show such amazing kindness. From you know the first bomb that ever went off in our village, our neighbors were the first in the door with plywood to board up our windows so that we could actually all go to sleep that night because we had no windows in the whole back of our house. But even to this day, I have you know now parents that are getting a little bit older, and when one of them is kind of out for the count, it's our neighbors who come and cut the lawn, take care of my dad's tomatoes or tomatoes, depending on which country we're in. Um, it's Marcella, who you know has been their friend for life, who brings over dinner for my mom. And so it's just that those amazing moments of kindness from people who have a whole life to get on with, and yet they make the time. They just always just make me so happy. When you look back on the community that you grew up in, how do you think that shaped you as a person? I think it's had a massive effect, probably more than I think we all realize till we get a little later in life when we start to be more reflective. So I was just back, I was actually just back in Northern Ireland because we were reflecting on and commemorating the Good Friday Agreement. So Good Friday Agreement brought peace to Northern Ireland. Um, so I've exactly seen half my life with the Troubles and half my life without. Um, that peace agreement, the Good Friday Agreement, was struck in 1998. and. Um, it was a really interesting year. I didn't live at home at the time. I'd already kind of flown the coop. I'd gone to university. I was in my first job. I was actually living in South Africa, which had its own kind of series of troubles. And I just remember, though, getting the news that everyone had voted. Like, I mean, it gives me prickles right now and that we were going to have peace and people were going to step up to the plate and make it happen. And you know, I grew up on the border, so I did see bombings and shootings and terrible things happening. So such a feeling of, like, um, hope. At the same time, 1998, if you know your Northern Irish history, in the fall of that year, in the autumn, we had the Oma bombing. Oma is my local town. It's where most of my mom's family are from. And that bombing was one of the worst atrocities we saw in the trouble. So it actually happened after the peace agreement. People don't even realize that to this day. And, you know, I knew... A guy I went to school with died in that. He'd gone into a restaurant with his dad for lunch and never came out. Um, there was a pregnant woman who died. I mean, it was terrible. 
and yet we fought through as a community. And I think that comes back to, you know, does it shape you? Yes, I think when you're a child growing up with that, you learn to be very resilient. Um, you learn a lot about the power of community, both for good and bad. But I also think that, you know, the other side of Northern Ireland was, you know, the doors were always open. You, we left our car keys in the car, so we'd never lose them. It was an incredibly safe place to grow up. And I had that idyllic childhood of like, just running around in the neighborhood. And so I always go back to that when I think about what do I want to create in the world today? It's that feeling of community, even when sometimes that community had to fight through a lot to get to another side that was a better side. Talk us through the purpose of Nextdoor and what you personally see as the vision for it. When I joined Nextdoor a little over four years ago, we, we were doing a lot, right? Local is a lot. Just about anything you do in some ways can be brought down to a local level. And I didn't think we had that cut through of something really inspiring that, you know, I always say about purpose, it's not just getting up in the morning to go to work, but it's what bolts you out of bed and makes you run to work because you're like, I have to make that happen. And that if you put in all that time and energy, it's actually worth it. So I, I love shoes, but I'm not going to wake up and go work for a shoe company. It's not my thing. We are going to talk uh, about your love of shoes. We later, can talk though. about <laughs> shoes later. Um, but Nextdoor really has that that you know inspiring purpose to me. I want us to be a platform where the utility and community do really interweave, and that anything you think about doing locally, you can get done on Nextdoor. Whether it's grow your business, create an event you know, agitate for change through your local mayor or something. There's so much that we can do on the platform. And then frankly, I wanna build a really strong business. I don't lose sight of that. Great strong businesses cast off a lot of cash flow. Cash flow can get reinvested. And that's what builds really big companies that stand the test of time. Taking your maybe company hat off for a minute and just as a regular neighbor, Tell us a story of something that's happened to you on Nextdoor that's like one of your great Nextdoor moments or neighborhood moments. Um, okay, so is it okay if I talk about someone who might be sitting behind me right now? <laughs> it is. Can I go we there? We'll be talking to her a little bit later too. Well, only because it always stands out to me and I, I, she probably has a different rendition of the story. But what I remember is right, the pandemic had just started and I think every single one of us wanted, needed to do something, right? You were kind of taking back your own personal autonomy to say, there might be a global pandemic. I've been told I can't do anything. I can't leave the house, but I need to do something for others, right? That is actually a moment of kindness, actually good for our own health when we do that. And so I saw this group pop up on our local next door. And there was this woman, Penny, who was like, not just, you know, managing the group, but she was actually matchmaking. And I put my hand up and said, okay, I can't do a lot during the week, but the weekends I can definitely go get groceries. I can go to the pharm pharmacy chemist for whoever needs it. And she matched me up to a couple of folks and I was doing my thing. And then Penny would ping me every so often. She would ask me something else or could I do this? And then one day she's like, oh, I'm gonna give you a call. And so she called me up and she was like, you're the CEO of Nextdoor. <laughs> so I felt like I'd been completely found out because I was just like, no, I'm just a regular neighbor in this case. But I said back to her, oh my goodness, you're from Northern Ireland. And Northern Ireland's the size of a pea. Like we don't go that far, right? There's only so far 1.4 million people can get in the world. But to find this person in my, you know, my local neighborhood, from where I grew up, who had the full-blown accent, so that meant that she'd grown up in Northern Ireland. 
was just like, it felt like, I don't know, it felt like the universe had spoken and said, the, the, all these threads connect for you, Sarah. I'm going to be selfish about me right now. There's lots of good stuff for Penny <laughs> and our group and so on. But it felt like a moment of like the universe saying, it's all going to be okay because it's meant to be. In the end, everything is connected. And, you know, if you just always remember, you know, kindness is contagious. So when you give, it's going to come back to you. I felt like that was a moment where I would have been giving, but it came back to me because I found this moment of connection in the midst of what felt like one of the loneliest times I'd ever lived through. Nextdoor was actually created in the beginning to combat social isolation and loneliness. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of research at the time around how tech could be used for good and play a part in that. There's been some really powerful pieces lately about the loneliness epidemic Mm -hmm. in the US, one out of every two adults saying that they feel lonely right now. And actually there was a recent piece by the Surgeon General Vivek Murthy that really, I think, shared a personal story of his as well and his struggles with loneliness. Can you talk a little bit about how Nextdoor helps with loneliness and if you have a a personal story to share there too, because we do often hear it's lonely at the top, Sarah. (laughs) (laughs) can't be lonely at the top. Um, What's amazing about that new report coming from Vivek, who I've had the privilege of getting to meet because of Nextdoor and because he actually views a platform like ours as an antidote, Most recently, that new report he's put out has been co-authored and helped with um, by another amazing individual, Dr. Julianne Holt-Lundstedt. And we've done a lot of work with her. She's a professor out of BYU, Brigham Young University. And in fact, her research on Nextdoor shows that knowing six or more neighbors has a really uh, strong impact on actually negating feelings of social isolation. So the magic number is six. My dream is that you walk into the doctor's office, right, and you tell them I have X, and they say go walk 10,000 steps a day or eat your greens or eat your colors or don't smoke. And, you know, if you're Northern Irish, the worst is only have a couple of drinks a week. We're like, we don't know how to deal with that. Um, but we want, I want them to say go meet six neighbors. Like how hard? Six neighbors is nothing, right? Walk down the street, you can probably wave at six people. So Julianne did that research. She also worked with us on the impact of a random act of kindness. And again, you know, I talked about kindness earlier being something you do with no expectation of a response. In this case, kindness can actually be a little selfish because when we do a kind act, right, we know it has all of these psychological and physiological benefits, right? It's beyond just what's happening in brain chemistry, but it's also releasing a lot of hormones and so on, cortisone, et cetera, that take down inflammation in the body that actually make you feel physically better. And so it just seems like such a small thing we all could do every single day that would make us feel better. And we all love habits and how we create habits. So um, I love that um, Dr. Murthy is showing this. Um, I actually loved his book on this topic. For me, loneliness, I, I think I've been very lucky in my life that I don't feel like, I generally, you know, I'm a, I call myself like I'm a secret introvert masquerading <laughs> as an extrovert. So I usually find myself in a lot of kind of social situations where I'm always with people. Actually, so there's a lot of, when I feel a little lonely, it can actually be often when I'm at the most social. 
and I just need to step away. I almost have like a physical feeling of wanting to peel people off myself. (laughs) Speaking about loneliness, it was a problem before the pandemic. I think a lot of people think that this happened because of COVID, but if you look back at the research, it was already a problem globally before the pandemic. Why do you think that we're at this stage now in America where one out of every two people, well, adults specifically, are feeling lonely? If you go back to one of the seminal texts that we often ask people to read at next door, it's called Bowling Alone by Dr. Putnam out of Harvard. And if you really read into his research, he starts back in kind of the 1950s, 1960s. His work is very US focused, but I think it actually has global um, uh, applicability. And it begins actually with the advent of television in his, in his belief set where people move from the front stoop where they would have sat out maybe in the evenings, right? We all have this beautiful neighborhood view right now. We're sitting on the front stoop, we've got rocking chairs and the kids are playing in the front yard and everybody knows everybody. And in some ways, like, I feel like that was a little bit like how I grew up. We were always outdoor, like it, it has to be like a dream sequence because in Northern Ireland it rained all the time. <laughs> but in my dream sequence, it's really warm. We, Wimbledon has just happened and we've pulled a rope across the street and we're playing tennis on the street. Every once in a while, a car drives up and my mom shuts out the window, take down the rope, kids. <laughs> Although we more like, take down the rope, kids. Um, and I kind of imagine we're all there and playing. And then something really different happened starting in the 1950s where people started to move inside. We started to have experiences with TV and TV shows. And while we talk about them being social, because often we talk about you know, the show itself, in reality, you're now having a very individualistic experience in front of that TV, even if the family's all sitting around the TV. And then from there, you just go into the rise of more and more technology. And so in some ways, while we've never been more connected, like, yeah, I the great thing is those girlfriends that when I went to college, I maybe spoke to once during a semester and then I saw them when I got home. I now regularly see them on social media platforms or I regularly email them or text them. So in some ways I'm more connected to them, but I'm also very disconnected. Like, you know, knowing your neighbors is just a great example of that. And so I think we haven't found our equilibrium as a society of how we both benefit from the connectivity of technology, but don't find ourselves so isolated by it. And I think it also takes us into, you know, people call it identity politics, but I think we very much gravitate less to like who we're like, but who we're definitely not like. And that kind of rigidity of thinking, I think also is making us feel very isolated right now. You also have two kids at home, and there's a lot of research into how technology is influencing the younger generation as well. How do you, you, you're leading a tech company, but you also have to be a mom. So do you have rules in your house around like how much your kids can be on social media platforms or tech or on their phones? And what does that look like at home? Yeah, I mean, interestingly, our our kind of strategy (laughs) as a husband and wife team has been less about setting rules, but more about trying to instill values. Um, And I think that comes back to, again, my Northern Irish upbringing. Like my parents never had a rule that you had to go give back, but there was a value in our house where you had to go, like you had to be a volunteer at the church jumble sale, or you had to be a volunteer, like I collected for Mary Curie for cancer research. And so it's more trying to lead with those examples rather than telling them there's a bunch of rules. So we don't have like a timer off on your device and we don't have like child controls and I don't follow my kids around with like whatever that 
app is 360 something or other because I find it a little weird because at some point they're going to leave me and am I going to just keep following them? Like, I might actually, that might be the Just have air tags on everything. Yeah, and so it's, it's more in our, in our household, certainly, it's much more about like, how do we show them, not tell them to do things. So for example, um, we started when they were a little, like a lot younger, um, we, there's a local homeless chaplaincy. And so we would go cook. Um, and a big part of the cooking for the homeless in our local town is actually also, or the unhoused, is also then sitting down at the table and eating with them and having a conversation. And like the first time we did it, you know, my kids were little and seeing, you know, particularly my oldest, who's a girl, sit down at a table because the chaplaincy particularly orients towards um, men. Um, you can't, in your head, you get all sort of caught up like, oh, safety and so on. And then you sit down and talk to these people and they'll say things like, this is the first conversation I've had with a child in two years because when someone's walking down the street and they see me sitting on the street, the first thing they do if they have kids is they cross the street. Um, and you realize just how dehumanizing that is. So what you're teaching your kids, we talk to our kids about it afterwards and say, yes, it's about giving our gift of time to give something really important, food and comfort, but it's actually more about seeing people as humans. Social media obviously does have a role to play in news, though, and that is one of the great things about it. So I know that my oldest son sometimes comes home and says, oh, did you see blank, blank, blank? I'm like, how did you hear that already? And he's read it somewhere. What do you see as Nextdoor's place in the news space and keeping people informed locally? Yeah, so I, I think it has a huge part to play. And we know that when neighbors tell us what do they want from Nextdoor, one of their core um, asks is help me stay informed, help me know what's going on around me locally. I think a step above the news is they actually want the editorial, if I can put it that way. It kind of sounds very professional, but they will kind of want to know what people think about it. So not just, you know, this new tax is about to pass or, you know, we've decided, like my area, like we've decided to build this three-story um, affordable housing. They want to be able to talk about it, to debate if it's something they don't agree with. And I think that's where Nextdoor really comes into its own. Like, I don't think we should be creating the news. Like, we're not going to be a newsroom or writing the news. But can we be a forum for not just distribution, because that stops too quickly in what we're trying to achieve, but can we actually be a forum for editorial and for conversation about it? Being involved in the local news does also sometimes come with challenges, and we've seen regulation and lawmakers try to crack down and platforms try to crack down on, I'd say, topics that arise during conflicts like the war in Ukraine, mm -hmm. elections, and spaces where it can get a little bit heated. So mm -hmm. how does Nextdoor handle that? Yeah. So first and foremost, I think it's incredibly important that people can have tough conversations. Um, I'll go back to where I started this whole conversation about Northern Ireland. If you couldn't have gotten people around a table who really had a lot to hate in each other and have them have a conversation, you'd never get to a place of peace. And in fact, that was what Senator Mitchell, when he came back as part of the 25th, 25th commemoration, 25th anniversary commemoration, that was one of the things he talked about was just how long the talking went on for before finally people said, okay, we're done, we're ready to sign this Good Friday Agreement. Like he actually thought it wasn't gonna happen because the talking was taking so long. And I think that's something sometimes we don't allow space for. So my starting point, and then therefore what I want from the company starting point is 
let's make sure all conversations can happen, but then how do we help them be constructive? And so sometimes it's just a nudge, right? We have something called kindness reminder, um, which if we know that a post is likely to get moderated, we let you know. Um, and we actually ask you, would you like to edit it? In fact, we just took it one step further with technology and have added now in a generative AI moment where it actually rephrases it for you. Um, and it's kind of interesting and fun to almost take something you're writing and say, how could I write this constructively? Or how could I write this more kindly? Is that a word? Um, I have had fun with that, just kind of seeing how, um, you know, how technology can help me. So those nudging moments. You know, the, on another place you could probably go to is kind of miss disinformation and so on. And I think that's also a place where you need to be really careful at how fast the news can change or the, the, the views can change. And that's where we try to go back to trusted sources, but also recognizing that things are not set in concrete. Like if I think about COVID, it just kept teaching us over and over again that anytime we thought we had some certainty on something, it was likely to all change again. Well, and I think reminding people that it's okay to have a different opinion mm -hmm. if you do that respectfully, right? Yeah. And that's really important. And I think AI is fascinating at the moment and how it's helping people just word things a little bit better and a little bit kinder. Is there any plans you can kind of just share about how else you may use it at Nextdoor? Just because it's the two of us <laughs> and no one else is listening in. Um, the place I would like us to go next, there's lots of iterations happening right now, lots of super cool stuff, like just the AI assistant I think is fabulous in terms of helping make my post more engaging. Um, where I would love to see us go next is what can we do for businesses? And really thinking about, you know, if you're a small business in particular, a small local business, you have zero time. Like you are everything. You're the, you produce the product, you sell the product, you market the product, you get in the back room and do all the accounting and bookkeeping. Um, and usually you're like a mom as well. And it's just really hard being that small local business. And so anything we can do to make their lives easier. So we know, for example, what your neighbors are saying about your business. We know why they love your business. Nextdoor tends to be an inherently super positive platform because usually the question is like, who's the best um, hair salon around here? Or like, um, I desperately need someone to deal with like my HVAC, who should I call? People tend to respond in the positive to all of those types of questions. So how do we, what I would love is that a small business kind of gets a ping from Nextdoor that's like, hey, your business page is waiting and they open it up and they're so like odd because they're like, oh my God, it is my business, but it's like, it's my beautiful business, right? And there's like a picture that's been pre-generated and there's like all like the beautiful pancakes they made on Saturday morning, you know, for their brunch customers. And then there's all the stuff that their neighbors are saying really nicely, you know, compiled into just a small short snippet about why their business is awesome. And that they're, they're like, wow, someone did something so kind for me today, right? And they have that emotion. That's next up. I mean, and again, that's not like sci-fi. That should be lo-fi. Like, we know how to do that. So it's just a matter of like time and focus from the company to get that done. Well, and speaking of the sci-fi, there's definitely some people who are a little bit scared or, mm -hmm. oh my gosh, what's happening with mm -hmm. AI? So what do you say to those people? For a start, I usually try to say, first of all, let's lay out our fears, you know, and they're like, oh my goodness, like no, no student, this always goes back to college, like somehow students or um, kids in schools, no kid in school will ever know how to write anything ever again. And I'm like, well, not strictly true. Like, how do you feel about things like a calculator 
or Excel, right? It didn't stop us doing math. It just allowed us to do more with math. Um, you know, when we got telescopes, it didn't stop us from looking at the sky. We just now could go look at the sky in amazing detail. So first of all, thinking about it more as a tool and less of a replacement. Um, not just seeing the downside, like when you think about education in particular, think about, you know, I think a lot about a neighborhood right next to mine, right, is a, an extremely, it's a Hispanic neighborhood. Um, it's a tougher neighborhood where I know that most parents are working multiple jobs at the same time. So when their kid comes home from school and they ask about, you know, my daughter is just reading Madame Bovary, which, good God, like, God bless if you've read it, but I had read just it. Just put that into the chat GPT and say, can you just well, translate this? Um, we were debating this kind of theme that had gone through the novel. And, um, and I was thinking about like how hard, you know, when I grew up, I was not debating Madame Bovary with my beautiful Northern Irish pa parents, like not in the slightest. Neither of them went to college. They both were out of school by the time they were 16. So my outlet was like when the Encyclopedia Britannica showed up in our household, it was like the clouds had parted and the light shone down. And so I think of a lot of where we're going with things like generative AI as just a way to put a tutor in every single child's house that can talk to them about the stuff they're truly interested in and let them go as deep as they want or shallow as they want and has just an unlimited point of view. Now, with everything, who knew if the Encyclopedia was always exactly correct or things would change and so they had to get updated. And so I think it's teaching then also this kind of healthy skepticism or questioning so that just reading something doesn't make it fact. You actually are also taught how to think critically alongside it. So. That's where I get like my optimism on technology is like, let's think about what could be really good, but at the same time, you know, probably some of that energy on how could it go really pear-shaped um, so that we can think about like, what are the checks and balances we put in place? So if you left next door tomorrow, which we hope you don't, <laughs> what would be your top two takeaways of what you learned while you were here? Oh, that is, that's a great question. Oh, I just came up with that one on the fly. No so one has ever asked myself me on the that. Back here. What would I, well, I think, first of all, the importance of purpose that, you know, I, I kind of knew, I feel like throughout my career, I've worked in increasingly more purpose-driven situations. And I think I could kind of see snippets of this from some of the leaders I got to work with before that they understood that you can manage people with their heads, like with all the facts and the logic and why they should do something, but you lead people with their hearts. And I think if your company doesn't have a purpose, it's really hard to grab their hearts because then they're really just, it's you. And that's just a very fragile, like, you know, one bad way to lead, I think, if people are staying only on a personal relationship, not because of a greater good. So I think Nextdoor has just, oh my goodness, on every dimension, just, just it's everywhere that you look. And then I think the second thing is the power of something I've always believed in, which is the power of your building your network. And this is actually, it's gonna link back to kindness, which is always take the call, do the walk, speak to the person, send a follow up, like help when you can, because it does keep paying back over and over again. Right, we, you asked me earlier about Vivek Murthy's, um, the Surgeon General, I just this morning was in our Neighborhood Vitality Advisory Board. Julianne Holt-Lundstedt came on. She was in between meeting with a bunch of senators, but she took the time to spend 30 minutes with the whole board to talk through the work. Um, and just 
when I look at that whole board, it's a collection of individuals who individually are absolutely brilliant, but collectively I think have completely changed the path of next door. But it's really down to relationships. It's kind of people I've met along the way, others have met, introduced me to. And you never know when that moment is gonna be, but really kind of being kind to that network just pays back over and over and over again. And how are you kind to yourself? Because you also have to manage the stress and pressure that comes along with being the CEO. Yeah, being kind to yourself is a really good question because I think I'm often on the last on my list (laughs) of the to-dos that have to get to done. Um, Probably the biggest thing is just taking time out to exercise. Um, You know, I really love being in the great outdoors. I think it's, again, with a bit of my Northern Irish background, I need to see green, like big swaths of green, to feel mentally healthy. And then doing it on like a big long hike or a big long run is kind of the physical moment. And it's, you know, definitely get in that zone where like I'm having my best thoughts or I can just zone out. Um, on I, There's my favorite hike um, is a very steep uphill and then it's about a four mile run home. But on the way home, there's this big rock that kind of juts out. I get all kind of spiritual. You know, I grew up in a very religious family, but when I get to spirituality today, it's more about just like the great outdoors. But I sit on that rock and I always take like five minutes and just do a little kind of silent meditation just staring at this complete panorama of trees and they're all slightly different colors of green. And I just feel like no matter what is burdening me at that moment, it all kind of washes away. Like I can feel almost the stress draining out and I'm like, okay, I got this. I can like go back at this again. Well, don't reveal the location because you may have all these people <laughs> turning up there next week. Then. Exactly. <laughs> Crowd on my rock. Speaking about your neighborhood and neighborhoods that are important in your life, mm-hmm. we are recording this in the Tenderloin of mm-hmm. San Francisco, which is next door's neighborhood. Yeah. It is not necessarily known as a scenic neighborhood of San Francisco. It is more known for some problems with homelessness and drugs mm-hmm. and some other sociological issues that mm-hmm. are prevalent in the neighborhood. So can you explain why Nextdoor chose the Tenderloin specifically? Because it was a conscious decision as its neighborhood. It was. So we were looking for space right ahead of the pandemic. Um, Ironically, we were living in a kind of a very tech hub building along with another social media platform who shall remain nameless. (laughs) And I really felt it was doing bad things to our culture, frankly, just getting in the elevator every day. Like, and you know, I will not name names, but let's just say at around 4.30, it was not a good time to try to leave the building because they were all leaving the building and you couldn't get back in again. And that was not the culture I wanted, like a high-performing team. So we went out to look and we had options, right? We had this beautiful building we're sitting in right now that was being developed um, in the Tenderloin, but there was also, you know, Salesforce Tower, that gorgeous, you know, big glass edifice that's downtown. There were other beautiful, very pristine kind of what you'd expect of a tech company and why we chose this. And I give full credit to Brian Power, our head of people and Vaughn, our amazing head of facilities, was because we felt it truly reflected the soul of Nextdoor because it was gritty. Like you step outside the building, it's totally gritty and you actually understand why it's so important to do what we do. Um, Because if communities aren't healthy, they really start to degrade quite quickly. And to your point, you end up with like, 
people who are unhoused, um, not through their own choice in any way. You have drug problems. It's, it's really hard to look out the window here and not feel like, oh my God, our work is not done. And then you meet neighbors like Glide who uplift you in the other way, where you think about what it must have been like starting Glide back when it was more oriented around the church, when you had the choir coming every Sunday, then they start to feed people. And today when we do our next door in the neighborhood moments, which is kind of our twice a year when we do some volunteering, when I go down to Glide and help manage the lunch, you know, I'm literally just handing out boxes or I put like the fried chicken in the box and fried chicken day is a really big day. Just the impact that you're having and it's very not typical of who you might expect. It's literally someone that just looks like your grandmother who's come to get the free lunch and you really think like, wow, okay, there's a lot of need out there that's very, you're very blind to. And by living in it, you know, again, it refills my bucket, certainly, of passion and energy to do what I do every day and then hopefully inspire everyone at next door to keep doing what we're doing. Well, speaking of neighbors, one thing we are doing in season two of Where Kindness Lives is taking a kind call out, which is where we usually have neighbors dial in on the phone to speak to our guests. But we are really lucky today to have one of your actual neighbors here with us, <laughs> mostly just so she can like dish all the dirt on what Sarah's actually like in the neighborhood. But no, Penny, so nice to have you here. We want to hear a little bit about your experience on Nextdoor as well. Penny is, I mean, like no one else on this earth. This woman does more for her community than anyone I've ever met in my entire life. And I mean that honestly. There's not a day I don't get on Nextdoor, but Penny isn't right there. And she's you know, figuring out, like this weekend, I think you have someone who needs an operation. She's figuring out how to get them to their hospital appointment because I think it's been canceled three or four times because they haven't been able to get there. She's figuring out how to get that person home. She's figuring out how to get people to stop by with a meal, how to get people to stop by for a chat. She doesn't just stop at the obvious. She gets the story, and then from there, she kind of goes a much bigger level deeper and just the care and the time it takes to do that, I'm blown away. And one other thing she does is she collects, she gets us all to paint these little ladybirds or ladybugs, depending on. Ladybird is oh, the dear God. Term, of course. Ladybird. We all know it's a ladybird, <laughs> not a ladybug. Um, and my daughter and I painted a bunch of them during COVID, but she drops them off with people as a way to say, I see you. Like whether it might be the checkout person at the local supermarket, it might be the UPS person whoever it is. I mean, who does that in real life? And yet here she is. In You're amazing. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and Penny, you started Good Fairy during the pandemic on Nextdoor, which was actually highlighted in the Nextdoor 100 last year. That's so right. can you tell I us have the doormat. <laughs> <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about Good Fairy and why you started and what, what Good Fairy does? Certainly. Um, well, Good Fairy was a group I started at the very beginning of the pandemic. Um, I had always enjoyed Nextdoor, so I was kind of, you know, hanging out in Nextdoor. And um, there were a couple of young girls saying, um, oh, I can shop for the elderly. And I thought, um, oh dear, it's the wrong messaging. Mm -hmm. You know, at the time, you know, if you were over 65, as far as we knew, the best thing for you and everyone else was for you to stay home and for someone else to do shopping for you. Mm -hmm. And that meant if you have a neighbor who's in good nick, but is over 65, you should be knocking on their door 
and not worrying about inferring they're frail, but saying, um, I'm going to go shopping for you. And it's win-win because um, I don't want you clogging up the hospital, you know, when you get sick. Um, and I also don't want you to get sick. Um, and I was also a bit worried about safety, you know. So I thought I'll just, I'll start a wee next door group just to help guide everyone. At the root of everything Good Fairy does is not ever have like, you know, you'll know the phrase, not have the whiff of burning martyr in the air, you know. <laughs> um, if anyone thinks they're do-gooding or being nice to anybody, um, they've totally missed the point. Um, it's got to be thorough, thorough genuine enjoyment on both sides, um, or it's, someone isn't going to be having fun. Um, and when I started it, um, I very quickly realised it would be super useful if this good fairy group could be seen by everyone in my county. And something next door did. Um, when I realised Sarah was who she was, <laughs> I was... How long uh, did it take for you to realise that, by the way? Well, um, she, what she, she made the terrible mistake of being, as people do with good fairy, if anyone is a little bit too useful, <laughs> uh, it's a terrible mistake, <laughs> and I pounce on them. And, um, I mean, I don't know if people actually heard what she said there. You realise that uh, the CEO, like everyone else, went to Good Fairy and said, yeah, give, give me a local senior. And I gave someone who lived geographically close to her. I said, paint some ladybug stones. Um, she also contributed to had a senior whose stove had blown up. Her stove had blown up and um, her neighbour refused to heat food up for her. So we, we fundraised and we, we, we bought a stove for her. Um, Sarah's actually rolled her sleeves up and been a good neighbour um, in a way that cuts through um, affluent communities, non-affluent communities, Hispanic or whatever. Um, she's, she, she was a really good neighbour. And I was immediately attracted to someone who was prepared to work hard. Um, but then when I realised who she was, it was... Um, on you know, something. Absolutely. First of all, I thought she might have some money. You know? <laughs> um, and I got she's quite a lot so good at what that. she does. Um, uh, but uh, I also thought this is just useful because um, I can tell her this is what I actually need next door to do. Yeah. And this is what's working and this is what's not working. Um, and as we've got to know each other, um, Irish people do care, really, really care about other people. Um, so I quite often take it on myself, and this is Sarah's assistant, so he knows all about this. <laughs> when something great happens on next door, whether it's through Good Fairy or just general next door, I quite often will tell a real life fairy story of something great that's happened. And it kickstarts a kind of a wish of community love. I just cannot wait to make sure Sarah has seen it. And I, I send, <laughs> don't I? And I say, I make sure you tell all of your team about this. Which I do. You guys <laughs> have done this. I do generally wonder if when you're inside, if you recognize just the amazing power of little things like happen. Well, we love everything you do, Penny. Please don't stop emailing James because we love, <laughs> sorry James, but we love hearing the stories from Sarah. So thank you for that. We do have a couple neighbor questions. If there was a day in your life you could relive, which day would it be and why? 
can I just be like really not super like excited? You know, I'm not, I could say it's like the day I got my OBE from the Queen was pretty darn cool because I got to go to Windsor Castle and meet mm -hmm. like Queen Elizabeth II. She was kind of a rock star. Um, but actually, the Mother's Day that just went past, it was like my perfect day. I kept saying it to my husband, my kids, they rocked it. Like, you know, I got to get up early, my favorite thing to do, hung out with my husband, we did something. But then, like, both my kids, when they came downstairs, gave me the biggest hug and said, I love you, Mom, like, happy Mother's Day, which I have a 16-year-old boy. Like, do not <laughs> underestimate how, yeah, all the moms with boys that are older right now are laughing to themselves. Rhea asks, what advice would you give to young, inspiring women to be a success in business? Stay true to your values It's the one I keep coming back to. Um, I think what the world needs right now are leaders who want to do the right thing, not the popular thing. And I think as women, we're often in situations where we are the only, and often to survive, we're kind of forced to take on traits of the majority. And when we do that, you can often lose your real true core value set. But I think when you stay true to your core values, A, you're much more authentic. The people who follow you are much more aligned to you, right? They will fall, you've got them by the heart and the head. And so just remembering that even through the very tough times, that sometimes it's better to, you know, lose the, the battle because your values were being kind of encroached upon than to lose sight of who you are as the person and hence lose the war. All right, Sarah, it is time for my personal favorite part of the podcast, <laughs> the kind carousel, which is just the most fun. This is why we get to ask you any kinds of questions. So here we go. What are your guilty pleasures? Guilty pleasures are chocolate, super high on the list at all times and any time of day or night, frankly, is number one. And then this is a real, I can't even I'm going to admit to this on like <laughs> anything in the public domain, but reading the Daily Mail. <laughs> I, I, that I is also one of my guilty pleasures, I have to love admit. the Daily Mail. <laughs> so good. <laughs> Before I go to sleep at night, it's like the last thing I just check in in case I've missed some major you know, pop star motion. Who knows? Well, hopefully this will make up for that. Anyone who knows you knows you are an avid reader and a bit of a bookworm. So what is something you're reading right now and maybe like recent book recommendation? Uh, yes. So I am a huge um, bookworm. I try to read about 52 books a year, which is kind of crazy, but um, there we are. Uh, I, let's see, what have I been reading recently that I've loved? Um, I have just read uh, a couple of short stories by an Irish writer, one called Foster, um, F-O-S-T-E-R, and I'm forgetting her name, it's Claire or something, but really good kind of short, I haven't gone back to short stories in a while. That then took me back to my favorite author, William Trevor, who's also an Irish writer, and his collected stories. There is nothing like them. Well, we have to talk about your shoes quickly, because we know you also love shoes. <laughs> I do so love shoes. any any brands or styles you want to give a shout Just out to? Just high heels. Like it's pretty simple. For everyone who knows me, I do not believe that there's anything you can't do in a pair of high heels. People always look <laughs> at me and you know I'm like let's walk to the next meeting. And then they look at my feet and they're like, how are you going to do that? I'm like, just watch me, seriously. I am like Ginger <laughs> Rogers. I can do everything Fred Astaire did, but backwards in a pair of high heels. So that's my motto in life. To run that famous race where <laughs> people run in heels, that's gonna got to be next on your list. Okay, so last question. You obviously do a lot of travel as the chief neighbor mm -hmm. of Nextdoor. 
We need to know your like must-have non-essential travel item. To give you an example, you may remember our podcast with Lisa Ling. She said hers was an ab roller. So, you know, high expectations, Sarah. I do remember her being on the ab roller. And then I went to go check one out. But I'm like, I don't have any space. Like, you know, I, I will only have carry-on. So, my well, this is an essential one. But my away bag to begin with, and I love it because it's a female entrepreneur who created that whole brand. And I think away is amazing. So that, because it fits up in the hole, and it's amazing what you can fit into it. Um, otherwise, like my big thing is a tea bag. Um, you know, when you're on United, God bless, and you say, could I have some tea? And they look at you and they say, and I say, could you, do you have any Earl Grey? And they're like, nope, just black tea lady. <laughs> I'm like, okay, here you go. And I hand over my tea bag. You could not sound more from the UK right now. <laughs> Although I admittedly also travel with tea bags, but I've been living in Australia too long. Thank you so much for making use of this small space in your calendar. And we hugely appreciate it. Oh God, and so thanks fun. for your time, Sarah. And thank you for being the chief neighbor of next door. Thank you. Thanks for all you guys do too. Thanks for tuning in and don't forget if you want to connect with your neighbors you can download the Nextdoor app or visit the website anywhere in the world just head to nextdoor.com. Mm-hmm.